To be. Or not to be. That, that is, is the, the question. question. And I sometimes have said that if I could be in a time machine and could only go someplace for like five hours, I would really want to be at the Globe for Hamlet. Now, if you went to see a production in Shakespeare's time, people saw something real. It happened. It was theatrical and they were there in the moment. We've lost the sort of dangerous edge of theatre, the tightrope walking, the sense that something might go wrong. Oh, what a wonderful event it would have been. Perhaps the play was just the spark to set off a party. Welcome to To Be or Not To Be, a weekly podcast about the most famous and baffling speech in all of English literature. In this series, we interview some of our leading Shakespearean actors, directors and scholars and ask them what do they think about to be or not to be, a speech that everyone argues about and no one can agree on. What do they think of Hamlet and of Shakespeare, the man who wrote those words four centuries ago? In this episode, we're trying to find out what might the first ever performance of Hamlet been like, taking place sometime around 1600 at the newly built Globe Theatre. As we'll see, the conditions the actors performed under were almost inconceivably different from today's theatre. So what would it have been like to be in the audience? And what might the extreme and bizarre performing conditions have meant for Hamlet's famous soliloquy? Professor Tiffany Stern is one of the world's foremost experts in Shakespearean theatre. What might the process have been like that took Hamlet from the page to Hamlet on the stage? So Shakespeare writes it, and after that, the actor's parts are written out. And what an actor's part is, is the lines that the actor is going to say, preceded by a cue of one to three words. So he knows everything he will say, but he has very little information about what is said to or about him. And although this seems very counterintuitive and really odd, if you think about an orchestra and a conductor, well, if you're playing the trumpet in the orchestra, you're not given the entire score of the symphony, you're given the trumpet bit, and then the conductor makes it all work together as a symphony. And it's a bit the same with an actor's part. You've perfected your part at home. You bring it along to what was usually one rehearsal, generally, I mean, it was a bit vague, if the rehearsal was terrible, you'd have another. But you didn't have many group rehearsals because they're not paid. So why would you? So you bring your separately perfected part along and then the prompter makes you a unified whole with everyone else, like a conductor. And he even had a book and is sometimes depicted with a stick, looking very much like a conductor. So incredibly, the first performance of Hamlet probably took place after just one group rehearsal. It is extraordinary. One of the reasons why they did this, well, as I say, payment was one of the reasons. They also didn't have directors, so they didn't have a concept. They were just doing the words. <laughs> so if you're not trying to fit into someone else's concept, you, you don't have that to sort out. But another thing was that every performance was technically a rehearsal and was sometimes called a rehearsal for ultimate performance at court in front of the queen or king. Um, so they are the rehearsals for the real performance, which will be maybe six months hence, you know, at Christmas time, say. Um, and in that way, the audience has to understand that it is watching rehearsals for court and judge accordingly. The rate at which they put on plays is also staggering. We don't actually know what Shakespeare's company was doing, but we know what a parallel company was doing. They're putting on a different play every day. They're putting on a new play every 12 days to a fortnight. 
and they're putting on in a season about 40 plays, therefore a mixture of new and old. In Stanton, Virginia, the American Shakespeare Centre tries to recreate the way that plays were put on 400 years ago. John Harrell has years of experience in this most gruelling of schedules. Our Actress Renaissance season, yeah, we crank out uh, in the past five productions in just a few, about six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. Now we've toned it back a little bit. We'll still get three productions on their feet in about a month. Honestly, to me, from a sort of mechanical point of view, the most awe-inspiring thing about those actors 400 years ago and the speed with which they were putting those out is is the mnemonic capacity that they must have had. I mean, I spend most of my time memorizing lines, and I must be memorizing 20% per week of what those guys were memorizing. It's crazy to me. And it makes you wonder how textually accurate they could have been. I mean, who knows? Maybe they were word perfect with every script. Who knows? I think most of us use the prompter when we're absolutely just up against it. Like, I, this thing cannot go forward unless somebody tells me what to say. But most of us pride ourselves on sort of digging our way out <laughs> of the holes that we get ourselves into. We have some audience who, God bless them, will bring the text of the play with them and read along with us. And I always feel like you, you should probably close that up because <laughs> this is early enough in this run that we're, we're going to take a stab at the text that you're holding in your hand, but we may not get it exactly right. You know. Performances started at 2pm on the south bank of the River Thames within a stone's throw of rival attractions such as bear-baiting pits and brothels. There is no fixed seating, so if you want to get a good seat, you have to turn up to the theatre about an hour before performance. And people sell you things, so you're buying snacks, hazelnuts, apples, beer. Uh, You're buying books, they're selling books in the playhouse. Slightly celebratory audience, but one that can turn angry quite quickly. If the play doesn't begin on time, if if they think the play's really bad, A, they've got a lot of weapons they can now throw at the stage. B, they'll tear up the benches, they'll tear down the hangings. It's a very scary audience. Back in 2009, I had the privilege of spending a few hours with Sir Mark Rylance. We discussed how, as the first artistic director of the rebuilt Shakespeare's Globe, he'd immersed himself in accounts of the play's original staging. There's this sense of enormous excitement about a play. There's a report about the first performance of Comedy of Errors at Gray's Inn, where there's so many students, uh, law students, piling into that hall that they have to stop. They can't get they, the play can't carry on. It's a riot. There used to be a company called Acme Theatre, and they you could hire them to come to your house and do Streetcar Named Desire in your house wherever you lived. If you lived in Milton Keynes, they would come and and Stanley would stand outside and shout Stella up to your bedroom or something. It was in your house. And, and this, I think, was the kind of experience that Shakespeare wrote for. He didn't write for you to just to intellectually observe. He wrote for you to be in the room with them and feel what it was like. Feel what it was like. And then your judgments would be a bit wiser. It was speaking to the whole of the consciousness and sensitivity of an audience, not just to their mind. And modern theatre practices, I, I fear, have, have paid pay so much attention to the mind and to the eye and less to the... Um, emotions and the, the kind of spirit in a room too there's a there's a, it's good to learn about the um the spirit that you you feel in the air when things are happening we used to have the comedy store the improvisational group come to the globe and do an evening 
every year. You got a very strong sense of what the clowning and the, the space might have been like when they came. A great interaction between the audience and the uh, players. Much freer than, than some of modern theatre has become, which has become almost like exhibits in an art gallery sometimes, rather than a kind of real dance and interaction between the audience and the play. Can you imagine the excitement of Hamlet as a new play? Actor Joseph Milson has taken part in some experimental performances which aim to find out how you can possibly perform a play with hardly any rehearsal time. The closest experience I've had was at the Globe, funnily enough, they used to do, I think they still do occasionally, not right now, when it comes back to life, these series of things called Red Not Dead, where they find an old unperformed lost play from the archives of the British Library or wherever they dig these things up and you meet at 10 o'clock in the morning you basically work the play through the rules are you enter left you exit right it moves in a circle so you don't have to worry but you are you perform it full out with the script in hand but you go for it and the theatre is full of academics on the whole who've never been able to see Hengist King of Kent by whoever you know these extraordinary obscure plays and as you're out there as actors you barely understand it but as you're doing it and you hadn't understood even that it was a comedy and the audience are responding and laughing at this and you are in the room with the audience you realize who your character is and that was a little sniff of how immediate that must have felt you know, what it must have been to actually see the first. I'd actually, I'd go for the third performance of Hamlet. <laughs> when they were starting to know where the laughs were. A modern production tends to have cinema as its goal. So it looks to be absolutely perfect. Now, if you went to see a production in Shakespeare's time, there'd be a lot more forgotten lines, a lot more prompting. And it might seem a bit haphazard. But actually, if you've ever been to a theatre and something has gone really wrong and an actor has to be prompted, people love it. The actor who falls down or can't open the door or forgets a line is always the actor who gets the, best, the most applause at the end because people saw something real. It happened. It was theatrical and they were there in the moment. And the kind of perfection we have now is we've lost the sort of dangerous edge of theatre, the tightrope walking, the sense that something might go wrong. Here at our theater, especially in the Actors' Renaissance season, the whole thing could come flying apart at any second, and everybody knows it. And it makes the thing seem more human, because you know that it, it has a fragility on the stage. It has a, a human element that is uh, irreducible. And I, I think it's great. I mean, I think it really illuminates Shakespeare's text. Professor Simon Palfrey has worked with Tiffany Stern, unearthing the way that actors' cues and parts work. One of the other really extraordinary things is, is that they didn't name the cure. You not only don't know when the cue is coming, but you don't know who it's coming from. And with a, with a system of very, very limited rehearsal, it means that the actor had to be on edge, had to be absolutely keyed into the moment. And so, so it has this element of surprise, suddenness and so forth. And all of these things, I think, they, they sort of concentrate this, this immediacy, which is very like living, you know, or living when it's ratcheted up. Think of moments when life is, you can feel things are on the cusp, where living is uncertain. And you think of moments of seduction or something, you know, you, you know, when every single moment 
you, you, you're kind of super hyper aware of everything you do and everything everyone else does. That, that idea that life is imminent, is about to happen, you know, and you don't want to miss it. I wrote a play, actually, after I left the Globe, called The Big Secret Live I Am Shakespeare Webcam Daytime Chatroom Show, where the audience was encouraged to telephone us during the play. We, we had a live telephone on the, on the desk, on the set of the play, and the audience was encouraged to leave their mobile telephones on and ring us at any point during the play and ask us questions. And we would have to answer the phone and, and, and then speak with a member of the audience who the rest of the audience could see holding their mobile phone, speaking to us. They know that it's happening live and direct and that, that it'll never happen like that again on another night, which I think in this increasing kind of technological age of things being repeated, when you go and see, I don't know, Mission Impossible 2 in the cinema, it's the same thing as it was in the afternoon and now seeing it on the television last night, it's the same film, it hasn't changed at all. Letting the audience into the play keeps it much fresher and makes it even more different. So, so it's more likely for there to be improvisation or things said um, or things happening that haven't been written down by Shakespeare. All this editorial work on the text makes us terrified to change a word or to forget a word or say things incorrectly. Perhaps the play was just the spark to set off a party. Ralph Allen Cohen is co-founder and director of Mission at the American Shakespeare Centre, and he's a pioneer in reviving the way that Shakespeare's company put on their plays. I have to say now I've gotten I used to I used to do this like dog and pony show all the time and and then try to be polite about other other ways of doing Shakespeare and I I can't much do it anymore because I I feel like somewhere along the line and and, and I don't know how it is we tried to we tried to be movies and we can't be movies as well as movies I mean we just can't do that so what we need to rely on is the one thing that plays have that 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 other media doesn't have and that is the simultaneous presence of an actor and an audience member. That's my little mantra that I want to argue uh, with the world, is that we're not trying to do museum theater. On the contrary, we're trying to go back to some things that really are at the heart of theater. And then I think we lost somewhere in the 19th century when we turned it over to spectacle, which is this, this relationship between an audience and an actor, which is the most modern thing in the world. So casting our mind back to one afternoon at the Globe around the year 1600, how did this new play go down on its very first performance? We have no record of that occasion, but we do know that the success of the play was literally left up to the first day's audience to decide. When you've put on your first performance in front of the audience, that audience is a special audience. That audience will have paid double what any other audience do. And they've paid double because they're going to judge the play. And they will clap and hiss and also mew like cats hiss and mew and boo and give plaudites clap throughout. At the end of the performance, they will say I or no to its future, whether that play can ever be performed again. And one thing that the playwright will do is make clear in an epilogue, it's okay, if you will pass this play, then bits you don't like will, will change. Dominic Dromgall was Mark Rylance's successor as artistic director of The Globe. What does he think the audience might have made of the first showing of what's now seen as a global masterpiece? I think they were probably breathless with excitement throughout. I think that that audience, you know, between 1592 and 1613, over that 21 years, went on a very big journey with Shakespeare. They, they watched all the plays, they got to know the plays, they understood him. 
they willed him to dare. They said, you know, go on, do something brighter, do something braver, do something more extraordinary every time. And they were a very, very acute, very generous, very bold audience. And Shakespeare couldn't have been anything remotely like Shakespeare was without that audience. That audience made him. And, you know, he respected them profoundly. You know, the epilogues at the end of every play where he says, you know, please applaud and so on. That's not winsome or coy. That's, you know, genuine. I hope you liked it. And if you did, you know, please let me know. Um, and at the beginning of um, Henry V, when, you know, he says, over a muse of fire, that's not some pompous old actor going, over a muse of fire. That's uh, an artist in a crisis at a particular moment when he just moved into a new theatre saying, oh, I wish I had a muse of fire because I don't know if I can do this. And if you help me, if you use your imagination, if you piece things out, if you collaborate with me on this, we can go somewhere quite extraordinary. And I think they did that all the time. With Hamlet, I think they were probably delighted that their friend, Shakespeare, had gone that bold and that bright and was sharing that much with him. And I think they wanted it to be as amazing as it was. And so I think there's a sort of... You can feel the audience's will for it to work. We do know that Hamlet became a success because it was widely quoted in the months and years after it was first played. But what about to be or not to be? Tiffany thinks the actors of the day probably wouldn't have been very keen on the speech. So what an actor would do is he would divide his part into the passions he displayed. Acting at the time was often called passionating. So he'd look for his passions, anger, love, jealousy, and he'd look for transitions when one passion changed to another passion and he could do those he could do those amazing transitions Burbage was said to have such big passions that he could burst the 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 buttons of of his front you know I think he'll have been doing kind of big gestures and and an actor who did incredible transitions was thought to be a great actor and that's in a way why to be or not to be is a bit of a troubled speech because it's quite long and it doesn't clearly have a change of passions in it. It's a sort of big, long grumble. And in that way, it's hard for an actor to make amazing. Um, and whenever you see a modern actor perform it, they stick stuff in, playing around with daggers and thinking about stabbing themselves. Or they stick stuff in in order to have a bit of an event that they can respond to within the play. When you try to find pictures of people from the past doing to be or not to be, what you get is a weird confusion of the words to be or not to be, flanking a picture of a man with a skull, of ha Hamlet with a skull, which is not, of course, the to be or not to be speech, it's the Yorick speech. But they want the visual memento mori of the man thinking about death flanked with the to be or not to be speech because there is no image for the to be or not to be speech. He doesn't do anything, he just talks. It's even possible that some early audiences didn't get to hear the speech at all. Um, I think one suggestion is that the play could be performed in longer or shorter forms. And one can imagine that maybe Court, a production in front of the king, you'd give him all everything, all the bits. But maybe in a winter evening when light doesn't last too long, uh, if you're starting at two o'clock, you can't go much beyond 4.30 or so, so you'll just give a shorter version. As to whether or not that speech would be cut... I think it's relatively cuttable. He has already considered suicide and decided, as God has set his canon against self-slaughter, one can't do that. And B, the speech works really oddly with the rest of the play. Although it's in itself incredible, the speech talks all about 
how we don't know what happens after death. Death is the bourne from which no traveller returns. And we've just seen Hamlet talking to a ghost and he absolutely knows what happens after death. Um, so it's actually a more sophisticated speech than the framework of the play it's in. So I think for a lot of reasons it might have been cut. There's no evidence at all that to be or not to be became a well-known phrase in Shakespeare's time. Bizarrely, the most famous and repeated soundbite from the play was a now obscure Latin phrase, meaning here and everywhere. People quoted Hamlet, and they quoted the ghost, and they quoted the line, hic et ubique, hic et ubique, here and everywhere. And it is odd that that was the most famous line from Hamlet, but it really was in its time. I think partly because it was a good soundbite, and it works well outside Hamlet, it's not so rooted in the play. So you can bump into your friend twice in a day and say, he cared to book Those were the first sound bites from Hamlet. To be or not to be only became popular quite a long time afterwards. I think when Hamlet became popular as a reading text rather than a performing text, because actually a lot of its interest is in how difficult it is as a speech. But obviously for an audience, a difficult speech, you just don't get it. For a reading audience, a difficult speech, you can work at it, you can find more and more levels in it. So I don't think it's brilliant theatre. I think it's brilliant thinking at home with a book uh, text. It shows Hamlet at his most muddled. Hamlet sets up um, a disputation he's going to have between to be or not to be. And then he never, he doesn't really d discuss to be. He says, being is horrible, everyone wants to die, but then we're worried about the afterlife. He's sort of gone off on one. And if I may say so, in that way, he sort of reminds me of an academic. Sets up something, but then gets sidetracked by his own eloquence into discussing something else. Everyone thinks they, in their own unique way, uh, resonate with Hamlet and understand Hamlet. And most people's interpretations are strikingly about themselves. Not everyone sympathises with King Lear in the same way. Whereas Hamlet, who's frustrated and feels held back and is brilliant and doesn't know if he's in love with Ophelia anymore and is so furious about his parents. And these are, these are all mixtures of everything we've all been through in adolescence, plus everything else that's happened to us. We've all got some mixture of Hamlet in us. And I think that's, that's why it's, it's, it's such a famous play. Thank you for listening to this episode of To Be or Not To Be. In the next episode, we'll hear about a remarkable production of Hamlet which had a Black Lives Matter theme and took the play into maximum security prisons and women's shelters in New York. They're completely with us. They were completely with us the whole time. This guy just looked at me silently and just shook his head. He just shook his head as in, don't do it. Don't do it. It was just a moment where you realize that Shakespeare speaks across the centuries this podcast was started in the depths of the coronavirus lockdown and the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors at a time of crisis due to pandemic, to rolling lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit and special fundraisers have been set up during lockdown. If you visit the podcast website, you can find some links. Finally, special thanks go to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley Day, who recorded versions of the speech at home during lockdown. And thanks too to Chris Dyer, 
Paul Sem and Hannah Fiore for their invaluable help and support. Soft you now. The fair Ophelia. Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered.